Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Hello, Father Jeffrey, and welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom, where we're talking about psalms and psalms as they're divided up into cathismata and as they are prayed during Vespers in the Orthodox Church. So far, we've talked about a couple of different really important concepts, one of them being that desert practice and cathedral practice and and how those things have come together over time and the different nuances there. And today we're going to be talking about how you, the listener, can actually liturgically participate in this moment of the service. So Father Jeffrey, it seems to me that the, cath- uh, the cathisma, when, when they're being read, well, cathisma means to sit, right? In my Vespers books that I've put together, I've just called them the sitting psalms to suggest to the people that just sit down now. Yeah, that, that is quite literally, you know, it's a rubric built into the title, <laughs> you know, uh, of the thing. And um, and that's, I mean, we can unpack a lot just in that. Uh, now, naturally, again, you know, the most people's experience, Saturday evening, Vespers we've spoken about, has uh, this festive character because it's the eve of the Lord's Day. It uh, is a mini Pascha. Uh, we tend not to sit, you know, there because it's you know, the the cathisma there has been turned into a hymn and we, we remain standing. So some of that is lost a little bit unless you do uh, get a chance to go to a daily Vesper service. But but then, you know, it, absolutely, you're invited to to sit down either, you know, on the floor or on a bench or in a pew if there's that. Uh, there's the great uh, kind of um, furniture innovation uh, in a lot of Orthodox churches of the, you know, the kind of standing uh, stalls which have fold down seats. So you often hear just at the end of the litany, you know, all those seats coming down as people are getting ready to kind of use, use those folding, you know, seats at that point. Um, so it is, it's a rubric, you know, built into the actual title of the, that part of the service. So sitting itself as an act already suggests perhaps more of a passive participation you're not obviously moving around, you're not kneeling, you're relaxing, you're taking in maybe some scenery. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about, uh, you know, what is being asked uh, of that of us at that stage. Now, I think in our kind of contemporary understanding of what sitting is, it's a lot of those things you've talked about. You know, we talk about, you know, the, the kind of seating at, you know, different kinds of events, you know, uh, you know, when something's in session, you know, literally people are, are sitting and, you know, people could be watching, you know, uh, a political debate, they could be watching a, a play, they could be watching, you know, a concert or whatever. Although interestingly, the more we get involved in some of those things, we tend to stand up, whether it's a sporting uh, event, you know, something exciting is happening, you stand, and or at least you have to because the people in front of you <laughs> have stood. Uh, and some concerts, you know, depending on the nature of the music, you could be standing the entire time, even though you've paid for a seat, which is, you know, an interesting thing. But I want to, you know, take us back to, you know, maybe the more ancient 
way uh, people, you know, would have experienced that because it would almost be the reverse. You know, if you were going to hear somebody talk, um, the person speaking would tend to be sitting and everybody standing. Um, so seating, you know, isn't always, um, you know, a sign of, you know, just a kind of pure receptive mode, uh, you know, in ancient times and, you know, early liturgical practice, even, you know, people would sit to preach and, you know, everybody, you know, would, would stand and, and listen. So it, there's an interesting play, you know, going on there, but certainly what I would suggest is it's not passive uh, in an ultimate sense. What it is, it's, it's, it's still, right? There's a stillness that comes from sitting uh, that you don't even have when you're kind of standing and leaning against something. It, you're not fidgeting perhaps as much. There's a, a bodily stillness, but that possibly is precisely in order to allow for a kind of more active inner posture, you know, a more receptive, a more, you know, even kind of, uh, you know, looking to the word as being the more active element here rather than the kind of liturgical action. So where what what's made up for, uh, you know, with less of the kind of moving around, lighting candles, you know, opening your mouth to sing, you know, swinging a censer, all the kind of movement and activity of, of the liturgy stops you sit and you're still, and that's that be still and know that I'm God, or be still and let you know, the Lord fight for you, let the, the Lord work his salvation, you know, for you. But that requires an, a, a kind of an attentiveness, an inner disposition of, of listening that is maybe more in keeping with, as I say, that kind of ancient posture of sitting as being a kind of active way of, of addressing the word. You know, and we can talk about the word, uh, you know, the the logos or the, the var from, you know, Hebrew um, being a kind of active uh, part of the liturgy that that is, in fact, actually held up and revered and worshipped. We still, you know, do this with, you know, carrying around liturgical uh, books like the Gospels and, and so forth. But, I mean, you probably know from Jewish practice, the, the, the carrying around of scrolls and the kissing of scrolls. I mean, the, the word itself has this kind of power and dynamism. And although we're still, although the church is darkened, although we're not moving around, the word of God is still active, right? The the word of God that cuts like a two-edged sword, the word of God that cuts to the heart um, is present. And so it's it's as much active in that sense as, as any other part, and maybe more so because of the focus on it. I find in myself that if I'm out in public and say I'm waiting at like say a wait in a, in a waiting room or I've gotten into line at the bank and I'm just standing there waiting or any kind of these situations. Um, I instinctively grab for my smartphone to check, you know, my email, go on Wikipedia, you know, these kind of things just to, I guess, pacify myself. And I feel that in those situations in which in daily life, if we're asked to sit and just sort of, wait or or just sit and and listen we often have that instinct to try and kind of pacify ourselves and and i think that taking time every day whether or not we're in church um to just read the next psalm or 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 hear these psalms is just good exercise for us psychologically absolutely i think you're right and there's this instinct that we have to fill all 
of our life with with activity and it's almost it is a kind of addiction that we have where we're trying to kind of numb ourselves from something you know and maybe part of what this is acting asking us to do in an active sense is the thing that we're trying to avoid right because that that word that comes that cuts to our hearts like a double-edged sword uh you know is asking us to you know as i say put ourselves in connection with you know, what's being said. Maybe there's something that is really uncomfortable, something that our heart, you know, is opening up and showing to us. And of course, we don't want anything like that. So let's fill our, our lives instead. You know, you're in the waiting room, you're on the bus or whatever. We'll put on music, we'll watch a podcast, uh, you know, or a YouTube video or something like that. And, you know, because we couldn't possibly countenance the idea of being still and paying attention to what God is saying. You know, how many of us have had the Lord visit us in a still small voice and not notice because the radio is blaring because the, you know, we've we've not managed to find the time to to kind of see past the wind, the earthquake, the fire uh, and to see and to hear that that still small voice. So it's yeah, it's an opportunity to train ourselves into doing something that you know, it wasn't that long ago, I think it was a more natural human thing to do, to be able to sit and listen to things. I mean, without Netflix, what did you do in the evening? Somebody would recite poetry or, you know, or would read a, a story or would play the piano even or something. And, and you would sit and you would be still and you would listen. And we have a real problem with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a common technique used in certain schools of meditation, which is to to have a home base this idea that when you, when when your thoughts hijack you that you have something that you actually come back to right and and certain schools of orthodox christianity talk about the jesus prayer being this way of of um giving you a home base to come to come back to in the silencing of, of your mind and your body and i feel that the psalms in this context can be that same home base that you know, we can, there's a certain amount that you're allowed to sort of let your mind wander within the context of the church, but to always bring yourself back to that mode of prayer. It's something we're really not used to in our culture. I think a lot of our Western culture is really trying to not have us do that for the purposes of kind of consumerism, whether it's advertising or anything like that it's just not a muscle that we're used to. It's almost as if when we go into an Orthodox church service and we kind of experience psalmody, this reading of psalms, it's it's as if we've been asked to run 10K and we haven't gotten off the couch in two years. It, it, that's a really good analogy. And I, I think you're absolutely right. And the sad thing, you know, I think a hundred years ago, if you'd ask people, you know, what do you see foresee as the benefits of, you know, kind of, let me tell you about all the technology that's coming, all the labor-saving devices, all of the you know wonderful tools that will be at people's disposal. Describe you know what life might be like if you had all of those things. I think people would have said, "Well, oh, that's smart. I mean, I don't have to work as hard or as much or as you know many hours. Uh, I can free up more time." And I think the thing that they might have thought of is you'd have more time precisely to be still, you know, to be peaceful, to be quiet, you know, to sit in a garden and to smell flowers you know, or to, to watch a butterfly or to just be, you know, and to be happy and in God's creation is beautiful. 
scene setting that we set out at the beginning of Vespers, just to be in the, on that stage is marvelous. You know, this is line from the Akathist glory to God for all things, the so-called Akathist of Thanksgiving, uh, which is, you know, how marvelous it is to be your guest, you know, that you've invited me into this. So I, I think people would have looked forward to, you know, all the technology and wonderful things that we have as an opportunity to have more of that. But what have we done with it? We've squandered that gift and we, we spend more of our time rushing around, being frenetic, being distracted, being, you know, and worrying that we're not 100% productive, you know, uh, and that's that whole, that's that late consumer capitalist society that has just gripped us. And that's ultimately our religion, right? If, if, we, if we cannot find our time and place and ability to be able to do this, what we're asked to do in a cathisma, then, then we've lost the plot, right? So we need to be called back to this. So yeah, I think, you know, and, and I think I mentioned before, you know, sadly, when people shorten our Orthodox worship services, the very, very first thing they cut is this. How telling is that? Right? Um, you know, and I, you know, often hear from people, you know, planning a sort of, well, are we going to do the Psalms? You know, no. You know, is, is, is the assumed answer, right? You know, we won't, why would we do that? That's monastic, you know? And, but really what they're saying, why would we do that? We're late capitalist consumer society people. It's totally unproductive, right? It's, it's, it's not the energy and, and dynamism and, and everything, you know, let's just get in and get this done. And to take the time to do this just seems so foreign to us. And, you know, we're, we're the poorer for it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it'll take a tremendous amount of education uh, to, to educate parishioners and, and other Orthodox Christians that we do take time to just be quiet together as a community, right? Not just go do this at home, but we come together and do this as a community. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public aspect of our overall project, For those interested, we actively post new episodes on our private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate, discuss, and disagree about open and sometimes controversial theological questions. To get access to these episodes and to join our online community, you can become a patron of the show. We can only continue this work through the generous financial support of our listeners. To become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and select which tier of support you wish. Again, that's patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. And now back to the show. Uh, I have a fun anecdote, and that is that I grew up in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and I was always taught you're not allowed to cross your legs when you're sitting down in church. Like, if you're sitting down, you can't cross your legs because for, I don't know what the actual reasons are, but I'm going to assume it's something like you're too relaxed or that's not something you do in front of royalty and and things like that. So I grew up with a lot of posture um, rules, like you can't have your hands behind your back, you don't have your hands inside your pockets, things like that. And I remember I was bringing my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, to church for the first time. And we're sitting down. It's like a sermon or something. And she has her legs crossed. And I, and I just like looked at her with a hairy eyeball. And I said, don't, you know, don't cross your legs. And it scarred her for, uh, <laughs> she, she, she feels so ashamed to cross her legs in church now. 
Uh, and, and it's kind of a running joke for, for us now. But I guess the question is, have you experienced that kind of rulemaking about how you're supposed to be sitting during the reading of Psalms or at any other point in church? Or what would be, I guess, some of your pastoral guidance when it comes to how to sit properly to properly participate in that liturgical moment? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I can assure you that in the, on the rulemaking side of that equation, you know, I have no experience of that. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't presume to uh, kind of impose a rule like that. But I have seen it, you know, I, I do understand that that is a kind of, uh, you know, part of the the wider small t tradition, you know, that people grow up in with the Orthodox Church. And I do think it kind of makes sense, you know, um, you know, if we think about the posture of sitting, not as a, you know, sit back and relax, um, invitation, uh, at this case, in this case, but rather this kind of be still, but precisely to pay more attention, right? Um, then it will probably preclude certain kinds and postures of, of sitting. Now, I mean, I, I wouldn't object to anybody taking any posture here. If they wanted to lie down on the floor, um, I would not, uh, you know, go and call attention to that at all. But the idea of, of sitting in a kind of alert position, I think, you know, both feet on the floor, you know, legs side by side, uh, hands by the, you know, arms by the side rather than, you know, kind of behind your head in a, in a kind of crossed form or whatever. I mean, all of that is, is it's more about what it's psychologically doing because we're psychosomatic, right? So, um, you know, our, what our body posture is will inform how the state of our inner person is, is all about. And there are ways of sitting that are about being kind of attentive and active and there are ways that are kind of i'm about to fall asleep um and you know one is being asked for here and and, and not the other but I, you know i think it, it's always dangerous to kind of impose these things in a kind of rule based um way because ultimately it's that that would be a judgment of of, of you know the inner part of a person that we couldn't possibly penetrate this is up to god and and, and the relationship with god but but yeah and i get the idea and i would encourage people i suppose just to say okay take the posture the position where you know you are most able to kind of do what's being asked of you so the more people know about what this part of the service is and why it's there and why we continue to do it and why we don't cut it out when even when there's time pressures to do so i, mean, I would cut other things before i cut this uh if i had to um the more we we understand that i think the more likely it is that people will adopt a suitable posture, right? So I, I would I would argue that pastorally, I think we, we we give people a reason to be doing it rather than telling them rules about what what they should or shouldn't do. Because I don't, you know, in the absence of knowing why they're doing it, it doesn't make any sense, and they would just be scarred, as you pointed out, your dear wife was. Mm -hmm. We all do our best, you know. Uh, I had a question about making the sign of the cross. Um, there are obviously times where making the sign of the cross is something that you do, say, at invoking the Trinity, right? Um, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, right? You make the sign of the cross. And uh, there are, though, some Orthodox people who seemingly cross themselves at random points 
in the service. And it might be something to do with maybe a line from a psalm hits them in a particular way or, or things like that. I'm wondering, could you comment a bit more about the meaning of the, making the sign of the cross outside of the invocation of the Trinity and maybe during like psalm readings or, or anything like that? Yeah. So I think people tend to make the sign of the cross at times they see other people making the sign of the cross. So, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, a very obvious place, because we usually make the sign of the cross invoking the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, any kind of reference to that in the service, people will tend to, to make the sign of the cross. They'll also do it during litanies, for example, and that's where, you know, the deacon holding up uh, his stole or orarion, you know, will make the sign of the cross on every petition. So people kind of will follow that. And that then becomes wrapped up in, well, I'm somehow connecting myself, you know, to this prayer. As we said before, the litany is like the, the great litany or the litany of peace. The deacon's only asking people to pray. And so their response should be the prayer, the prayer of Lord have mercy. And so making the sign of the cross for that uh, makes sense. But but then you get this notion of, okay, well, somehow making the sign of the cross becomes about appropriating what's being said. You know, the words of, of or the theme or, you know, something here as, as connected, you know, to me, uh, you know, in, in where the practice exists, particularly in things like the fervent litany or litany of uh, fervent supplication, where names are, are, are given specifically of people who have departed or people who are being prayed for, who are sick or traveling or pregnant or whatever, where we know the people, there's a tendency to, as I say, kind of appropriate that and say, yeah, that, that's my prayer too. And so I make the sign of sign of the cross here. And then kind of analogously, yeah, well, when people are, are just praying psalms, maybe there's a particular theme that does catch, you know, with us. As I say, the, the, the process that's going on here, if we're actively listening, uh, we're going to be connecting ourselves at some level or another with, with the text of what's going on. These are often really compact, uh, condensed stories. Um, not every detail of the, the situation is told to us, but enough usually that we can kind of make sense of what's going on, right? Um, and as a consequence, there'll be times when our own story, the story we brought, that we've brought, you know, gathered and collected and brought with us into the liturgical service, our story will connect almost directly with, you know, what the psalmist is talking about. You know, one of the psalms that we get... Um, and right before liturgy, if we're doing, you know, third and sixth hour is a psalm about, you know, my familiar friend, you know, my, my deep and best buddy has betrayed me. Right. And, you know, if it had been anybody else, I could have dealt with it, but, but it was you, you know, how, how, and how betrayed I feel that my very closest companion has betrayed me. Well, that's maybe a story that you resonate with, you know, that, that son, well, I can kind of make sense of that because I feel deeply wounded or offended or, or hurt by, by somebody in my family or a close friend and that sort of thing. So, and, and that's how the narrative of scripture can kind of work on us. Cause we make those kind of connections. It's like a little spark jumps across from the story of the scriptures to our story or from our story to the scriptures. And that invites us to, well, I was saying kind of appropriate it for ourselves, but also immerse ourselves in that that bigger story. So, I mean, the way that plays out, obviously, is true faithfulness is found in God. And you know, if we can do the same move the psalmist does, then we have made the U-shaped 
you know, move from, you know, that period of disorientation or betrayal back into hope and faith. And, uh, you know, that's how ultimately every one of the Psalms can be this deeply transformative experience. If we hear and connect with that, it won't be every line, every word of every psalm, but there are times where we deeply connect or resonate or, you know, the 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 melody of our life, you know, kind of harmonizes with what's going on in, in the scripture and we connect with it. And so to kind of physically appropriate that or, or make sense of it, making the sign of the cross or making some other move, you know, sometimes I've seen people kind of clench their fist and beat their breast at times of, you know, repentance or, uh, you know, making, you know, bowing and that sort of thing. Now, there's a certain amount of constraint if you're sitting, right? So this is easier, you know, in parts of the service where you haven't been asked to sit and be still, but it can still, from a sitting posture, make some of those those moves um, uh, that, that, that are about connecting, you know, connecting our story to the story of the psalm or of the, the wider scriptures. So there are certain parts of liturgical services. I'm thinking primarily in the Eucharistic Divine Liturgy at the Cherubic Hymn. We the, we sing, the people sing the line, and the priest recites the line. Now lay aside all earthly cares, right? And this idea of okay, let's put kind of our baggage on the side right now. We're all here together for this joint kind of mission. But if I'm hearing you correctly what one of the things that we should be experiencing when we're say sitting down and listening to these psalms being read or if it's saturday we might be standing up and listening to the singing of select verses we should in a sense have our baggage with us so to speak or be connecting our own story with that u-shaped story that we are experiencing in those psalms is that right absolutely you don't only want the baggage with you you want to unpack the baggage you know, you, the, the, this is the time, you know, for, for doing that. Because otherwise, all you're doing in life is you're splitting yourself, you know, into personas, right? Here's my church self. Uh, and, and we'll get back to that invitation of the Cherubim, you know, in a moment. Don't let me forget that. But uh, that's not true in the sense of saying, you know, leave behind your real world and come in and we'll make believe for a while. We'll, we'll play act at being spiritual or Christian. And, and here's this whole other way of being. And it's such a tendency and such a temptation for us to, to do that, to have our church self, our spiritual self, and then everything that's said in the context of the liturgy actually has no bearing on the real world as we conceive it, right? Well, when the you know priest is giving his homily and talking, well, he's talking about my behavior here and what I'm doing here and or about my spiritual self that I'm projecting, you know, into this world because I've left my bags behind. I've left all my issues behind. I've I've set aside all earthly cares. Now I'm standing in, you know, in heaven. But, you know, it'll sadly come to an end. I'll have to go back. And what happens then in your so-called real life is that nothing of what happened in liturgy will will have any effect you know and how sad is that that there's been this invitation to bring ourselves in our the total being that we are bodies and souls the whole of our life into line with god's plan for us and yet we've walked out of church back into a world that's totally disconnected from it that we've separated you know from it so when i say you know we, that whole movement of gathering you know, of setting all of the, the the issues of our life in the context of our world and society around us that we do in that great litany is specifically to invite us, you know, to connect with, our, you know, our real world experience with what the, the the liturgy is, and the liturgy actually is not this 
totally disconnected uh, world, a different plane from the real world. It's a concentrated, uh, you know, specifically designed way of living the real world so that it can train us to go back and, and make all those connections and live our lives in a, in a kind of transformed way. So yeah, when you're hearing, you know, the Psalms at this meditative moment of the service, if something occur, and this this is the thing, we should have a freedom to do this, right? And I'll tell you right now, don't worry if your mind wanders a little bit. You know, there'll be a verse or a word of a psalm, and then suddenly one of those bags that you brought with you opens up, right? And as I say, that's the the moment, not to kind of drift off and say, okay, well now I'm going to think about only that. You know, you're going to think about that in connection with the way it's been presented in the psalm. So if the psalmist too is lamenting or you know regretting something or is is unpacking something, and you've made that connection, well, where is the move of that psalm going? Listen for the the kind of move back to to the Lord, move back to God's promises, move back to God's grace and forgiveness to to the to the hope that things will be put right that everything we're going through that is suffering will be overcome that all the wicked powers will be emptied and all of that so that so that precisely by making the connection we're brought to a moment of transformation or of insight and then you know onto a new way of living our life you know in the world so that the wandering of our minds here in a meditative sense you know because we've got the good posture of active listening and of the word cutting our hearts means that we can get, you know, you should be able to stand up after the cathisma, a new person, at least a little bit, right? Every, you know, so when the, that, that, that period begins, you sit down, you, you think to yourself, how am I going to be a better person in five minutes time or when, however long it takes to go through that section of, of the Psalter? Look for those opportunities, right? So I said, I come back to the tribicum. That's, a, you know, a very concentrated high moment of the divine liturgy. Not all of the divine liturgy is about forgetting earthly cares. We've been praying for earthly cares, um, for goodness sake. And, and I mean that, for goodness sake. Um, but, you know, at that moment where we're about to enter into that solemn memorial of God's saving acts, and specifically in the breaking of the body and the sharing of the blood of Christ on the cross that we are going to enter into, that should be the entirety of our concern. By that point, all of the things that we brought with us are concentrated and focused on that one, one high moment. And, and, and at that point, there's a lot of, you know, pay attentions. Uh, you know, this is a very solemn moment. And for that period, you know, up to receiving communion, we should be in that zone, as it were, and not, you know, inevitably we will wander a little bit, but we should be called back. And and there should be, in, in an analogous way, actually, to the cathisma uh, period, there, there should be a, a kind of economy of movement. I always ask people, you know, doing altar serving, and everything, this is not the moment. From that, you know, point on to communion is not the time to be rushing around, organizing things, or to have it all done, because now we are together paying attention to this one specific thing. We've been brought, you know, as the fathers say, before the throne of God in heaven, not only in a place, but in a time. We've been brought to the end time. And so that's a very, very solemn, you know, kind kind of, uh, kind of a thing, which is, you know, functions a little bit differently. Every part of the liturgy has those different things, but I'm sure there'll be a podcast about that someday. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. 
For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enactingthekingdom. See you next time.